Episode 51 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a contracts manager and a freelance editor. And I'm your co-host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. I'm an author and erstwhile editor. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. Today, we are going to be doing the final episode in our adaptation series, and we're going to be talking about transmedia adaptations. So what do we mean by transmedia adaptations? Yeah, this is sort of the, this is sort of the term we came up with that's kind of a catch-all for anything else related to a fictional property that's not like movies, TV, mm-hmm. um, because that you know, so if you look at your contract, you know you have multimedia rights, you have merchandising rights, you have um, like theme park right, you know rights, mm-hmm. like <laughs> graphic novel rights, and so those are in your contract. It's not likely that they will be exploited, but we did want to discuss some of them because they have been exploited for a lot of different properties. Um, so I guess the easiest one to sort of talk about is graphic novel, which I, I don't know, I guess you, I wouldn't necessarily call it a transmedia adaptation because it is still, you know, text and image as an adaptation goes. So, um, but you know, we can, we can certainly talk about a graphic novel adaptation, what makes a good one. Um, it is actually not a realm I'm that familiar with simply because the graphic novels I do read are original graphic novels, meaning that they are expressly written to be graphic novels first. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there are definitely a lot of YA books that have been turned into graphic novels. Um, Twilight, famously being one of the first. Um, I believe Cassandra Clare's books have been turned into graphic novels. Murray Lou's too, wasn't yep. Legend? Yep. Legend and Prodigy and Champion, I believe, were also turned into graphic novels. I actually have not read them. Um, but, you know, as far as when I talked to Marie about the process of turning her work into graphic novels, she didn't necessarily have a lot of control over it. I imagine they would have been fairly faithful to the story. I mean, they have to be, mm. I'm assuming. <laughs> um, and so the only thing that she really even saw during that process was the artist would send sort of sketches of her characters. Now this must be super cool because like you would see someone else's interpretation of what your characters look like. And, you know, she would sort of kind of go back and be like, well, I think such and such is, you know, this character has this color hair or maybe looks a bit more like this. Um, so, you know, you have different characters and she would just sort of pick and kind of guide the artist, which was super cool. Um, but the, the inherent medium of the graphic novel is just different. Mm -hmm. In fact, it's more like television than it actually is like a book Mm -hmm. or even a picture book, to be honest. Um, and when you write a graphic novel and I don't know how many of our listeners are, are interested in it. I actually love graphic novels and I was interested in it before I became a novelist. Because I draw. So as a kid, I drew a lot of comics. I didn't actually keep a written diary. I kept comic strips instead. So I would, like, come home and then I would, like, draw my day out in a comic strip form. Um, and so 
graphic novels tend to work from a script and the the writer writing the graphic novel script will kind of loosely give what's a- the action in each panel mm-hmm. kind of loosely de- it's you know like a script like loosely describe what happens you know give the characters in what position generally sometimes they will even specify this is a medium shot this is a far shot this is you know and sort of and the process of writing and art can be symbiotic especially as not a lot of graphic novel writers are artists so um, it does require a different knowledge of the medium and you have to I think be a little bit more visual than some writers actually are <laughs> um, I don't know I guess we could sort of talk about graphic novels in a separate podcast because mm-hmm. I, I do I don't read them as often as I used to well, I just have I just don't have time um, but the adaptation from a YA novel to a graphic novel, because I don't know any adult novels that have been adapted. I don't think so either. I'm yeah, sure the gra- there's been one, but I can't I'm, think of it. Me neither. The thing is, it's like, in the 2000s anyway, there was a very, 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 very brief boom in manga that I think kind of just, like, grew and then imploded. (laughs) I, I I don't see a lot of people reading manga these days. I don't see a lot of people talking about manga as much. Um, it's very popular at my library. Manga? Yeah, because on my digital library, like, the first, like, 12 pages of what's currently, you know, available or what has newly been added to the digital library is all manga right now. I can't remember the titles. There's two different ones, and there's different issues. So apparently in Minneapolis, someone out there is requesting (laughs) lots of manga from from our library system. I don't know. I, I, I feel like it'd be hard to read that digitally. Well, not hard, but I don't know. I just feel like it'd be kind of weird. Like if I were to read a graphic novel or a comic, like an American comic. You want to comic, hold it, yeah. Yeah, and like look at the art. I don't know. It just It would seem kind of weird to me to read something like that digitally. Yeah. I'll have to look it up and see what the titles are because I have noticed that recently. And it didn't used to be that way, so... I didn't hmm, used to see them as frequently. Them. Yeah. <laughs> Which is well, great. Request stuff from your libraries, guys, because they want to serve their communities. So if the library isn't showing something that you want, request it. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the, on that note, this is something that actually people do in Japan a lot. There is a, a form there called the light novel that we don't have in the West. It's... It's a little bit hard to describe. I think the best way you could possibly describe it is it's like an illustrated novel, but it's not even that. So the one that I'm thinking of is actually it's called All You Need Is Kill. And they made that um, Tom Cruise movie with Emily Blunt that they kept retitling. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Um, t- what is it? Yeah, where they're, where it's like a reboot over like mm-hmm. he dies over and, over and then and over. they start over. Yeah. Um, it's like kind of like a video game almost premise that like you, you know, basically you die until you defeat the final boss, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, so that's 
a light novel that it's it's a little bit more substantive in terms of text but it also still has the art component to it that's integral to the storytelling i guess in many ways you can almost call the works of um brian selznick light novels i think that's maybe the closest equivalent we have like the the invention of hugo cabret or i'm trying to think of other books or this is not exactly a direct comparison either but something that is integral the format and the illustrations and is integral to the work itself is Illuminae and Gemina by Amy Kaufman and Jay Kristoff. Um, and some, and when, and sometimes when you do sell rights to Japan, they will actually adapt it into a manga. I do believe that Marie's books in Japan legend anyway, was, uh, either turned into a manga or a light novel. Um, almost all of their books, uh, have illustrated covers, you know, so the, reading population in Japan is very much into this sort of graphic format that we're not in in the US. Um, and I don't, I mean, we do have our own thriving comics industry, but that's not the same thing at all. Mm-hmm. And comics still aren't as mainstream as manga reading is in Japan. So I don't know. Can you think of any other adaptations for graphic novels or manga? Not for graphic novels, no. I think we should revisit that as a separate podcast episode in the future. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then other things that we that we were thinking that were considered transmedia adaptations is actually video games. Mm-hmm. If you think about it, a lot of the big properties like Harry Potter has video games, Star Wars has video games. Do they have a Hunger Games video game? I don't know. I I know there was a game, there was a game online that you could play where you would be, um, you know, it was like a simple text box and like you'd type in your answer and it would decide like whether you die. It was kind of like a choose your own adventure, like hunger, hunger games thing. (laughs) It was like really simple. There was a Harry Potter one too, I think, um, that was like again a very simple online like choose your own adventure like you didn't play a character or anything it was all just text um but you would play online and it would tell you if you were going to survive or die hmm gaming is something that's interesting i'm not a gamer i it's not something that i do in my spare time i do play the occasional video game but it is a creative medium and i think people sort of discount video games as a form of storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, if you were adap- adapting a fictional property to a video game, what do you focus on when you adapt it to a video game? The action, usually. Well, the world, I think, is the most yeah. important thing that you would be adapting. So the first thing you have to think about is the world that you're adapting. And so a lot of video games do lend themselves better to uh, fantasy properties. So, you know, Harry Potter. I mean, just imagine Harry Potter as a video game, which I've not played, but imagine you're in Hogwarts, you know, and you can cast spells and solve puzzles and, you know, fulfill these quests to whatever. And then, I don't know, do you defeat Voldemort at the end? It's a very different experience playing... And it's funny because all the video games, sort of like graphic novels that I have played, are original. So they're not adapted from anything else. 
but I know a lot of people who love um, like Knights of the Old Republic, which is a Star Wars video game. Um, and it was until George Lucas sold the rights, I believed considered part of canon. So all the the characters that you were able to play in Knights of the Old Republic were um, canon, and you know the world of the Jedi and the orders of the, the you know and what you could do as a Jedi and this and that were considered part of canon. And then the status of the can canon of Knights of the Old Republic games is a little bit uncertain, I guess. <laughs> um. But yeah, you know, you're adapting the world. And it's I find it interesting when you're picking a fictional property to adapt into a video game. So obviously you adapt the world. But what about the world do you think is good to adapt? What is it about the world that's good to adapt? I think you want... Um you know, it's kind of the same thing we talk about when the world building is good in novels, you know, when you, you can imagine the world existing beyond, um, beyond, you know, the events of the story, that, that there are places to explore, that it's something vivid. I know there was a video game, I'm not going to remember the title of it, but there was a Spider-Man video game that came out several years ago, and it was what I think the term is um, a sandbox game, wherein... There's, you know, you're playing Spider-Man and, you know, you have missions and you have different, you know, things that you do or collect or, you know, whatever. But um, outside of that, you could completely roam through the entire game, which was, you know, set like in New York City. And you could climb up any building, go down any street. The game was so immersive that you could go off of the quests or off of the trajectory that the game had for you and just explore and go anywhere. Um, and that was my friend Mike's favorite thing about the game is that he could, you know, at one point he was like, look, I'm outside of your apartment in this game. <laughs> like, And that was a really immersive um, world in that particular game. For me, I like... Um, the world building in the games that I play is, I don't play a ton of video games, um, but the ones that I do play <laughs> are, are much more like task oriented <laughs> or story driven. You know, of course there was, um, Stranger Things, which wasn't, and not Stranger Things. Wow. Stranger, no, Life is Strange. Life is Strange. I was like, it's strange something, um, which isn't an adaptation of anything. Although I've heard someone bought the TV rights to that game. Is that true? It would be an excellent movie. It would be so good. I, I would. It would be I an would, excellent movie. I would read, I would watch the heck out of that movie, mm -hmm. and I would read the heck out of that book. Right? <laughs> right? Um... um. Yeah, but yeah, I like, you know, I, I like the same things about worlds and video games that I like in books, which is I like them to be immersive, I like them to be detailed, I like them to feel, you know, rich and lived in. Yeah, the, you know, for something like Harry Potter, if I were to design a video game for Harry Potter, the things that you want to think about in video game design are settings. Mm-hmm. You know, what the settings would be. So you could probably have a private drive setting, and then you could have platform nine and three quarters setting and then the train then you can have a uh, or you can have a, certainly have a Diagon Alley setting you could have a Hogsmeade setting you could have a Hogwarts setting 
um, you know, and so you can sort of, you know, it, it's kind of interesting because, like, if you choose to go the original character route, which is what they did for the Knights of the Old Republic, these are not, you know, any of the characters that we'd seen in the movies before for the Star Wars franchise. So they kind of came up with these entirely new characters and, you know, gave them a backstory and this and that, put them in the game, and you can play them that way. In the Harry Potter games, I do believe you you play as Harry, mm-hmm. I think. Um and that would be actually kind of interesting if you think about playing a video game as Harry Potter, if you've read the series in particular, because if you start a perfect drive, so imagine being able, you have to, one of the tasks you maybe you would have to do is to get, retrieve one of the letters the owls sent you from Uncle Vernon. Um, and then once you get, you know, then Hagrid shows up and then once you get to Diagon Alley, then you probably would have to solve a whole bunch of riddles and different tasks to get, like, your wand and your robes and your, you know, books and stuff. Um, I'm assuming probably the train, the Hogwarts Express, would probably be a cutscene. <laughs> unless you want to play, I guess, games and, like, and you know, and you can imagine this sort of game as it plays out that, you know, at certain points you collect chocolate frogs along the way, right? right. Like. Um, doing something maybe will earn you like extra galleons or whatever. Mm. Um, and then you get to Hogwarts itself and then you have your different classes. So as a game, I can absolutely see this sort of adaptation. Um, because I think it does lend itself to kind of a game-like setting and a game-like mechanics. The idea of having to it's kind of hard to have in my opinion to have like Voldemort be your big bad yeah because well especially the way it plays out in in the books Harry is actually stripped of almost all of his agency um so as a result but imagine how cool would that be in a video game because you have all the smaller bosses you need to defeat before you get to Voldemort <laughs> you have Quirrell Lockhart um, I guess Sirius Black really isn't a, a boss that you would have to defeat, but, you know, so, like, each book has, like, a different minor boss that you have to defeat, and then you get to Voldemort, and in order to defeat Voldemort, you have to actually legit go on real quests to find and then destroy the Horcruxes, like, real ones, you know, <laughs> where you have to do things and learn things and level up before you're finally able to meet, I mean, like, think about how much more interesting, at least all of a sudden, to me, a video game of Harry Potter would be <laughs> than the than the experience of reading book seven. <clears throat> <laughs> no, still, still not, still no. Anyway, so yeah, so that's kind of you know what I think of when I think of video games is you know you want to know obviously as Kelly said like an immersive world that you can get into, but also a world that's big enough to contain mundane things mm-hmm. right that's the great thing about harry potter is that you can do all these mundane things you can buy a wand you can buy robes you can cast minor spells you can collect chocolate frogs you could you know so it's filled with all these mundane side things that you can kind of collect and buy and do this um and it because it's a school environment too that you could you learn new skills mm-hmm as as the levels get harder, as you move on from story to story, from book to book. Um, I actually don't know if the Harry Potter games are like this, but now I'm curious to play them. <laughs> um, 
I haven't heard very many good or bad things about Harry Potter. I know there is like a Lego Harry Potter game, but I've not played that either. Yeah, I haven't played that one either. I have heard good things about Lego Star Wars, though. So, mm. <laughs> um, you know, so when you adapt things for video games, like I know comics do get video game adaptations. I know mm-hmm. Batman has had a couple. Kelly mentioned the Spider-Man game. I'm trying to think of, of other. I think, as far as I can tell, it's really only been Batman that I can think of with video mm-hmm. game adaptations, and I think he has several. And again, you think about, you know, the world that they live in. So Gotham is a very distinct place and mm-hmm. a very distinct setting. Or, you know, the New York that Spider-Man lives in is a very distinct place with a very distinct feel. Um, so I don't know. I think video games is an interesting medium to adapt to, and not every book lends itself to being adapted to a video game. Like... I don't know. For example, can you imagine Eleanor and Park being adapted to a video game? No. No. (laughs) Most contemporaries, I think, won't work. I think it would be difficult for a straight contemporary with no fantastical elements to be made into a video game. Yeah, the only thing I can think of... I mean, again, in Japan, they have sort of video games that are more like choose your own adventure mm-hmm. and that are like romance games. It's going to sound weird to people and I, and I promise it's not porn, but it's essentially no. like you play a character and you know, you meet people and you choose what you say and yeah. wh- what action you take. And it the happens, whole point is to yeah. romance them. It happens yeah. in our games too. Like David and I are playing still. We're still not finished. Um, Dragon Age Origins. And Who we are have, you romancing? We're trying to romance Alistair because that's what I want to do. But David is not on board. He wants to romance someone else. So, <laughs> so sometimes, <laughs> sometimes behind my back he goes and he messes up our, uh, our romance course. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, that's a, it's totally a thing in some games. Not all games, but... And it's fun, you know? It's like... It's interesting character development stuff. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, essentially a game like Life is Strange is... It does have a slight supernatural element to it. Mm-hmm. Because the basic central premise is that our protagonist, Max, can go back in time and basically redo things. But in that respect, it's also like a choose-your-own-adventure game. Yes. Um, so, I mean, I th- it would have to be, I think, a contemporary novel with some aspects of the, of, you know, supernatural or speculative element. Or I think this could be interesting, just like a straight up romance game for a contemporary romance could be interesting. But I don't know how big the market is for that kind of a game. Like I said, in Japan, that's super popular. But over here in the States, it's not nearly as popular. <laughs> um... And then on the flip side, in another transmedia adaptation, you have video games that get adapted into movies. Mm-hmm. Most recently, I think we had the World of Warcraft movie, which I don't play World of Warcraft and I didn't watch it. Um, and I think it flopped here, but it made a lot of money overseas. So I think we're getting another World of Warcraft movie. And I find, I find video game to movie adaptations interesting because of the inherent storytelling differences between the two of them. The only, quote, video game adaptation that I've ever seen as a movie 
was one of the Final Fantasy movies. Final Fantasy, back in like late 90s, 2000s, had a movie called Spirits Within that I went to see. It was terrible. <laughs> um, and I, I don't know why. And, I, and the thing is, I really did love Final Fantasy VII. And obviously these are not characters from Final Fantasy VII that are in the movie. Um, but for all that there's like really fantastic storytelling that's happening in a lot of the Final Fantasy movie or Final Fantasy games, it did not translate to the screen. And I couldn't figure out why that would have necessitate me having to watch Final Fantasy Spirits Within again, which I'm not sure I want to do. <laughs> but I think maybe it is an aspect of agency because when you are in a particularly in a role playing video game, you are able to choose. And you can you can affect the outcome to some extent of how things play out in a story. And I think that's what makes Life's, Life is Strange, such an amazing game to play. For me, it was almost yeah. entirely revolutionary uh, in terms of video games because I have never really liked it. I get frustrated with gameplay. I often just want to fast forward to the cutscenes because I want the story. I want to know what the story is, how the story moves forward. But the immersive aspect of Life is Strange and getting into that character's head and making those choices not as me necessarily but as max it was a very different experience getting into that story mm-hmm. um i mean i'm trying to think like are there any other adaptations that were made into video games or vice versa like video games made into movies i'm not sure about video games made into movies i know there's infinitely more um, video games from other sources. I mean, there was a Lord of the Rings one. Yeah. Um, what else is there? Uh, I'm not sure. Lots of kids, um, video games too. Like for young kids come from a lot of, um, sources like children's books and, other, you know, children's TV shows and things get adapted into little easy video games like matching letters and numbers and, mm-hmm. you know, puzzle solving type games. Um, I'm sure there's countless others that aren't even coming to mind. Yeah, video game storytelling, I think, is fascinating. Just focusing on that aspect a little bit. Like, I don't know if you ever played or watched The Last of Us. Mm-mm. My God, that's amazing. I didn't play it. I just watched Mark play through it. Because <laughs> like I said, I get frustrated with video game mechanics. Um, but this is essentially the story. Of, it's a dystopian story. And the world is now populated by zombies. And so it's a survivalist tale between this guy and a teenage girl that he runs into over the course of the game. So over the course of the game, you're trying to basically just survive. You're trying to find supplies, you're trying to get to safe points, you're, you know, trying to protect Ellie. Um, and then at certain points in the game, you actually play as her. Um, and it's a, over the course of the game, what is really interesting, what is fascinating that develops is the relationship between this guy and Ellie. You imagine she is mu- maybe about his daughter's age. In the prologue of the game, he lost his daughter. Um, and so the, the kind of like 
parental familial bond that sort of develops over the course of the game between the two of them. And it's like really, really, really wonderful. And I believe it's the same company that does the Uncharted games, which I also recommend as far as storytelling goes, because these are essentially like Indiana Jones in movie form. Or in in video game form, and I love me some Indiana Jones, or like The Mummy, any of those kind of, like, slightly swashbuckly type of action movies. Um, but yeah, I think video game storytelling is very interesting. Mm-hmm. For a for a while, Marie Marie Lu worked in the video game industry before she. Um, became a full-time writer and I believe her husband still works in video games and she herself is an enormous gamer and so she actually for a while had come up with ideas and premises for a legend a legend game not necessarily a video game in like a console form but just like Mm. a game yeah like a phone like a phone game you know you can wander around you can buy different things you can level up if you do different tasks and so she does actually think that way she thinks the way a gamer does, and I think that actually comes out in the way she writes her books, which I find very, very fascinating because it's so different from the way I think. <laughs> um, and also, like, her next book, Warcross, coming out, which I have read, and it is very much influenced by gaming, so I do, you know, obviously it doesn't come out till next year. Sorry, you guys. Um, but it's, you know, if, if you are a gamer, if you're interested in video games and the way video game stories are told and worlds are built, I think this would be very, very interesting to you. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I have anything else to say on video games in particular. Mm. Yeah. What about theme parks? Well, we can use Harry Potter again. I mean, yeah, Those. that's the go-to. <laughs> There are, I mean, there's like Batman roller coasters and stuff, you know, there's like other themed rides, but they're not necessarily immersive in the same way. Some rides are more about storytelling and it kind of takes you through different scenes or different moments. And then some rides are purely adrenaline rushed and they paint it a certain color and slap like a thematic name on it. Um, yeah, and are less like about story and more about the thrill. Like I know that Six Flags parks generally have like some sort of partnership with DC or something like that. Yeah. So a lot of their rides are named after superhero characters, and they don't really have anything to do with right. The There's no except story. the color scheme. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, but yeah, but some rides or some theme parks um, do have a storytelling element to them. And I have not been to Harry Potter World yet, to my <laughs> to my deep dismay. Um, but I'm I know people that week. have... Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so jealous. Oh my god. Oh my god. Just, I'm just going to prepare for my wallet to weep. That's what, uh, I'm, that's uh, what I'm doing. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, but it's like the... You can, that's an experience. Like they've built a mini Diagon Alley and you can go, you know, walk through the alley and you can go to Weasley's Wizard Wheezes and you can go to Ollivander's and get a wand and you can go drink butterbeer. You know, it's like a fully immersive world. Even if you never stepped foot on a single ride, you would still be going into 
the Harry Potter universe and be surrounded by, um, by that entire atmosphere. Yeah. I mean, theme parks are interesting. I grew up in LA, as you said. So as I've mentioned before, you know, so we have a lot of theme parks out there. We have a six flags. We have a magic mountain universal studios and Disneyland and a, and a myriad of other kind of theme parks that are thrill rides more, more or less like Knott's Berry farm, which uses all the characters from peanuts. Um, but none of the rides are really themed in any kind of way. You know, it's really just like shows and stuff that come out. Um, but I, I do, particularly in Disney, I find Disney's adaptations of fictional properties into their rides the most interesting. And particularly, I'm thinking of the Indiana Jones ride in Disneyland. Now, I don't know if there's a direct equivalent to the Indiana Jones ride in Florida. I don't believe so. There is a stunt show, if I recall, but there isn't an actual ride. But there is a ride in Adventureland in Disneyland, the Indiana Jones ride. And the whole ride is essentially, you know, you're going through a temple and, you know, it's, you know, you meet Indy at different points and you're like driving a truck and you're doing all sorts of stuff. But the narrative that's being built for you actually doesn't isn't the ride itself. It starts in the line. Because when you're in line for the Indiana Jones ride, you're going through a temple. Um, you know, the, the like an archaeological archaeological dig site in process. So you like walk through the walls of the temple. And I and I remember this particularly because this ride opened a long time ago now, but I was nine and um, because it was like the new ride at Disneyland, it was like a super long, long line. And I remember going and they gave us these like cards with like things that you can decipher, like stuff written on the walls of the temple. So it's like this really interesting, immersive experience that sort of similar to a video game. They build the world around you and make it as, as immersive as possible. Cause there were other things like in the rooms and the weights, like if you like, there's like a, a bamboo pole propping up a ceiling with like spikes coming down and like the pole says don't touch. But of course everyone goes in and shakes the pole. And then there's like a thunderclap and then like the the spikes lower a little bit. <laughs> and then somebody yells at you for doing it. So there's, there's a lot of interactive experiences just in the wait, the sort of the lead up to the ride itself. And then you watch sort of a quote film, like a film made by Sala, who's like telling you, you know, it's basically a safety video. Like, man, when you get in the ride, you put your belt on, you do this, make sure you don't, you know, blah, 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 blah. So that's interesting to me. What they've done is take the central premise of Indiana Jones, which is essentially an adventure story, a swashbuckling adventure story set in kind of long lost civilization type things, like discovering long lost civilizations. And there's like dangers around every corner mm-hmm. and then built a ride from that, an experience from that, which I find super fascinating. And in Fantasyland, it's sort of similar. Like you have, like all the Disney movies, like the Peter Pan ride, which I do believe there is a Peter Pan ride in Florida. I believe mm-hmm. so. And you get in the ship. You get in the ship, and it flies around, you know, London, and you go through important scenes from the Peter Pan movie essentially. Mm-hmm. And so that's another interesting adaptation, I think, too. Like, what do you consider the most important scenes of a of whatever property you're adapting and then 
you know, make a ride out of that. In Universal Studios, at least the one in, again, the one in L.A., because I have not been to the one in Florida, there's an E.T. ride, and that's you, you're on a bicycle, and it, like, flies around, and you go through the movie. There's a Jurassic Park ride, um, and it's, that one is less a straight-up adaptation of the film as so much as you're just like, dinosaurs! And it's a raft ride, so you expect to get wet. Um, you know, so they, you know, you, or, like, I believe there's a mummy ride now, because the mummy is, like, a Universal Studios property, so, you know, they built... I have not been on the mummy ride, so I don't actually know. Um, but we go back to Disneyland, there was the Star Tours ride. I don't know if you... Is... There must be a Star Tours ride in Orlando, right? I'm not sure. I went to Disney World one time and I was six. So <laughs> what? If, if there was then, there isn't now, or vice versa. You know, I'm sure it's a very different park from the one I only vaguely remember. Yeah, I go to. I growing up, I used to go to Disneyland every year, so I know that park like the back of my hand. <laughs> I have been to Disney. I've been to Disney World twice. Once when I was 15, and then once with again with Mark in her early 20s. And we're going again next week, so. <laughs> um, if To my recollection, I do believe that they have a Star Tours ride, which is an adaptation, obviously, of Star Wars. And again, that experience starts with the wait. You're in there, and you're kind of going through the space station. You see all the different droids going about their business. And the basic premise is that you are on a group like you're basically like on a shuttle to a planet, like a tourist planet, and you get in, and it's a simulated ride. And it used to be, before the the prequels came out and they revamped it, it used to just be like a simple, like you get in this very very 1980s looking simulation room, and you you know you go and you're on your way to this planet for tourism purposes and then you get oh no you get pulled in by the empire and you're doing the trench run from the first star wars movie and all that sort of stuff and the last time i did this ride they've revamped it entirely so the story is slightly different now the pilot is no longer this like bumbling droid the pilot is now actually c-3po um it was this like bumbling droid who was like i've never done this before this is my first time piloting a rig so thanks for coming along with me but now the actual pilot is c-3po and they've added action sequences from the prequels as well (laughs) yeah it's terrible um and i also believe that i'm sure that i'm almost positive the ride has now been closed in order to make further changes to it now that the force awakens has come out Mm mm-hmm and they are building an entire Star Wars, Star Wars park in addition to that. So we will see what that is like. Um, so, you know, that's when I think of amusement park adaptations. You take the most recognizable elements of the fictional property and then translate that into a real physical experience mm-hmm. for the person going through it. This is really just an episode for me to talk about how much I'm anticipating my vacation right now, you guys. <laughs> I'm just a huge kid. I love amusement parks. I love theme parks. I love thrill rides. I love that kind of a thing, so. <laughs> and I need a vacation. I need a vacation before election day comes up. Oh, God, don't we all? Yeah, so I think, 
I think this wraps up my end of the discussion of transmedia adaptations. I don't know. What about you? Yeah, I think that does it. All right. Awesome. What, if anything, are you reading lately? I am just finishing up Gemina on audiobook by uh, Amy Kaufman and Jay Kristoff. This is kind of a fun game for me to play, uh, since I do listen to a lot of audiobooks these days. A lot of the narrators are the same across yeah. different books. And this is particularly strange for me, because I just finished listening to The Midnight Star by Marie Liu on audio. And the narrator for the for the Young Elites trilogy is also the main character in Gemina. Oh. So it's the same actress. <laughs> <laughs> so it's very weird because now I'm like, well, that wait, that's not something Adelina would say or like it's so strange. Oh, that's very listening bizarre. Yeah, occasionally that can happen. Um, the voice actress who does all of Sarah J. Mass's Throne of Glass books, Elizabeth Evans, also voices Nina in Lee Bardugo's Six of Crows. And again, sometimes like I'm listening to, and I, when I finish listening to Cricket Kingdom, every once in a while, and I just, and that came out fairly close in time to Empire of Storms, and I listened to that, and I was like, what is Selena Sardothian doing in Ketterdam? Like, I don't understand. What is going on here? It's a very weird experience. So that was kind of my main thing about listening to Gemina, because I just finished Marie's book. I was like, what is Adelina doing here on the space station? Um, I really enjoy Gemina. There is another voice actor who, in, in Gemini, is described. He has a British accent, so in, every, in, like, in universe, all the characters, all the female characters are like super in love with him, and you think he's super hot because of his voice. And the voice actor has a really, really incredibly sexy voice. And I recognized him immediately because he's also the voice of Elias from Summit to Hears books. I remember when you were listening to that book, you would G-chat me and you'd be like, I feel like I can't listen to this at work because the voice is too sexy. It's like <laughs> distractingly attractive. <laughs> I recognized that voice right away. I was like, oh, I know Oof. who this is. <laughs> But it is a really interesting experience now because I had never, until pretty recently, ever really listened to audiobooks. It was not a thing for me. And then now it's kind of all, not all, but is a huge way that I consume my reading. Um, so this added dimension of who is narrating kind of changes a little bit how I'm consuming the work. Gemina is super long, so I'm all, and um, it's also very, very good. It's really, really, I like the audiobook productions of it because it's a full cast. And it's really more like a radio play than it is like just someone reading the narrative to you, right. which is most of the other books. So that's what I've been reading. But you? Oh, I am back on my game. I read, yeah, it feels great. I, um, was up at the family cabin last weekend. It was our last, uh, last cabin weekend of the summer and it was raining the whole time. So we were stuck inside and I read three books 
and the weekend. Oh my goodness. It was fabulous. Um, I read The Rose and the Dagger. I finished that one up. Um, I read This Is Where It Ends by Marik Nijikamp. Marika Nijkamp. There you go. Sorry. Sorry, Marika. Um, and I read The Graces by Laura Eve, which was an ARC that you gave me, an ARC, mm-hmm. um, which is very witchy. Uh, if you like witchy books, that's full of witches. Um, and I just started last night, Eligible by Curtis Sittenfield. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, which is a Pride and Prejudice retelling. Mm-hmm. I actually uh, heard good things about that one. It's pretty good so far. Um, it it tra- he translated it's it's updated to the modern day, and the Bennets are a Connecticut family. Uh, they live in Connecticut, and um, you know the plot is essentially the same. The characters all have the same names. Uh, but it is updated and things are slightly different and it, it, it works. I didn't think it was going to, but so far it works for me. Um, yeah, Liz is, Lizzie is, a um, she works at a, as a magazine writer for like a Cosmo type magazine, um, writing various articles and she lives in New York and she has a, boyfriend who's married and who also just kind of sucks and is a loser and Jane also lives in New York and she is a yoga instructor and um, <laughs> was was dating a Frenchman for like a decade um, before they parted ways and so now she's in the process of um, going through IVF and trying to get pregnant as a single woman and Lydia and Kitty are um, CrossFit freaks. <laughs> They're like super into CrossFit. <laughs> it's so good. Like reading it for Lydia's scenes alone are like amazing. So I'm only in the very beginning. There, there was they were at a Fourth of July barbecue and. Um, Lizzie just overheard Darcy um, insulting her and her sisters. Um, and so, you know, we're just, I'm just at the very beginning of the book, but it, it it's clever. I really like um, the way, the way it's going so far. So that's awesome. Yeah. I don't know. I have kind of mixed reactions to Curtis Sittenfeld's books. She wrote prep, mm-hmm. which I really liked. And then she also wrote an American wife which is that Romana Clay thinly veiled story about Laura Bush. Oh. <laughs> it's interesting. I didn't love it, but it was very, I mean, she writes really well. I do think mm. Curtis Sittenfeld is a really, really wonderful writer. And, but I was kind of like, hmm. but I have heard very good things about eligible. I think mostly, I guess I, how does it hold up to Bridget Jones's diary is my question, because I think of whenever I think of a modern right. retelling of, of Pride and Prejudice, I always think of Bridget. So. Yeah, they're very different. I mean, um, this one is much more um, like beat for beat, like Pride and Prejudice, I would think, than 
Bridget Jones is. Mm, um, mm-hmm. You know, it's very closely following the plot. It's just that all of the settings, you know, have been updated. You know, even the opening paragraph is, you know, has the want of a wife. Oh, it's Chip. It's Chip Bingley. And he was an, an uh, a contestant on a reality TV show that is essentially The Bachelor, but was called oh Eligible. My, oh, my God. And and he had like a breakdown and refused to propose to either girl at the end. Oh my god! And so he's coming to Connecticut to like visit family for the summer, and Mrs. Bennett is like, "This guy, like, <laughs> I'm gonna set my daughters up with this guy." But it's like every scene is written. Like I feel like you could almost have. Pride and Prejudice open and have eligible open and like go through paragraph by paragraph Hmm. almost it's probably not quite that faithful but I've read Pride and Prejudice many many times and I can definitely feel the rhythms and the beats are all really close so it's a different type of adaptation Um, I haven't finished it yet so I don't know how it will hold up at the end Um, but I do love Bridget Jones that's a great a great Pride and Prejudice adaptation, too. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. So then, any off-mini recommendations this week? Uh, I am watching Stranger Things. Finally, at last. Yay! Uh, yeah, I'm halfway through. I have enjoyed that immensely. Um, and I think that's the only thing. What about you? Um... Black Phoenix Alchemy Lab perfumes. <laughs> oh my god, you are the one who got me into those. Yes, back when I know. we were roommates. And <laughs> my B pal habit. <laughs> it ruined my life. No, it, it made my life so much better. But also, I'm too poor to buy any of them right now. <laughs> so tell me about the ones that you bought so I can live vicariously through you. Okay, so for those of you guys who don't know, Black Phoenix Alchemy Lab is a perfumery. They're an online store. I do believe they occasionally have pop-up stores at like different conventions, and I know that they're based out in North Hollywood. Um, but it is a woman-run company. All of and these are perfume oils, not like um, like eau de toilette or um, things like not like a spritz kind of a perfume. So these are all perfume oils, and you know they're all vegan they're all you know and it is the most most goth site you'll see in your life (laughs) Um, not safe for work in some cases (laughs) in some cases not safe for work but they do take a lot of inspiration from fairy tales literary characters um and they kind of have different lines based on different fit and this is hey transmedia adaptation if you want to think about it oh there you go Hey, look at me, tying it all back in. Um, You know, so they have, like, an Alice in Wonderland line. They have a Labyrinth line, the Jim Henson movie. They have a Crimson Peak line. They have, you know, like, lines inspired by the works of Neil Gaiman and stuff like that. And they also have, you know, kind of more classic characters. They have, like, Shakespeare characters. They have also different perfumes based on places. Um... My kind of regular favorites throughout the year that I like to wear um, is actually Alice from the Alice in Wonderland perfume. And then kind of in the summer, I love one called Lolita, Mm -hmm. which is obviously the one from the Nabokov novel. And I also recently have really gotten into 
there's one called Mary Read, which kind of goes with Anne Bonny, the two of the famous female pirates from the golden age of piracy. Um, but they always, every month, have limited edition perfumes. Them And so they're kind of themed. It sort of depends on the year and what they feel like. And they call them like lunacy events because they're always sort of tied to like a full moon and they've named the moon. So it's like a very witchy kind of gothic sort of site. And this month, every October, they do something Halloween-ish. Previous years, it used to be something called the pumpkin patch where like all of the perfumes were like based on a pumpkin note. But this year they did not do a pumpkin patch. This is, um, and so they just sort of have different scents based on kind of different concepts around Halloween and this time of year. And so the one that I am like wearing constantly is called Samhain. Um, oh, it just smells like autumn in a bottle and it's so amazing and it's so good. And I, I hate that it's limited edition. I hate when Black Phoenix Alchemy Lab does limited edition because then it just makes me want to buy like 70 bottles and hoard them, mm-hmm. which I can't afford to do right now. Right. Yeah. My favorite scent isn't limited edition, but they haven't had it in stock for like, like eight years now or something. Because I guess the supplier where they got some of the ingredients or components, I guess they would be called, um, the supplier changed or stopped selling them or whatever and they hadn't been able to find a suitable component but it was such a popular scent that they won't discontinue it or take it off their website it's still on there and it just says not currently available (laughs) for like eight years ouch (laughs) oh it's just a torture me and i'm officially out i was like conserving my last little bit and i'm officially out of it it's so sad yeah, I really got into perfumery and, like, fragrances and stuff through this website, basically. Um, they have, like, a forum and stuff that I would be, you know, and people would kind of post about. And they would, this is where you'd find most of the reviews when I was first getting into Black Phoenix Alchemy Lab perfumes. And you find the reviews, people would describe the notes and how it smelled and, you know, what it felt, what it smelled like fresh and what it smelled like after it had been worn on the skin for a long time. Um... And so this was, and I, they also exchange, you know, so on the forum, you could, you know, somebody's like, well, this didn't work for me, but if somebody wants it and you, you can, we can trade bottles or we can, you know, you can pay me and I'll send it to you, blah, blah, blah. And, um, so every once in a while, cause there is a scent from 2007 that I hoard. It's called Selkie and it was a limited edition. And it smells so beautiful and so amazing. And I just, I like, I conserve it because I'm like, this is a limited edition from 2007. I'm never going to get the scent again. So, <laughs> um, and it's kind of what, what I feel about my autumn perfume, Salwin 2016. I'm just like, no, once it's gone, it'll be gone forever. <laughs> so that's my off menu recommendation this week. Um, be prepared to fall down the rabbit hole of just fall fall down the rabbit hole. Also, I just love whenever whoever writes the copy for all of their scents. Mm-hmm. They just are able to describe the scent of whatever the perfume is in the most evocative way. Yeah. You know, a lot of times you see perfume and you see sort of really boring sounding top notes or like rose, gardenia, jasmine, you know, base is a sheep row or whatever. And, and it doesn't say anything, but the way they describe their sense is like, 
extremely evocative and poetic in a way. So that is my off-menu recommendation for the week. Excellent. So now it is about what you're saying. And let me see. We have two questions, well, three questions from two people. And these two questions are for you, JJ. These are from Nadia. And the first question is, JJ, can you talk a little bit about what it's like to publish and work in the publishing industry as a person of color? I always hear about how the publishing world is overwhelmingly white, so I'd love to hear your take on this. Hmm. This is kind of a lot to unpack, so maybe it would be a better for a separate episode, but it is true that publishing is overwhelmingly white. That's <laughs> and a fact. I think they're absolutely a fact. I think there are a couple of reasons for this. Partially because the entry into publishing is not conducive to people who don't have safety nets, essentially. So the demographic of people who make up publishing are generally those whose parents can kind of help them out. That was certainly my case because publishing is centered in New York City, one of the most expensive cities to live in the world. They don't pay you very much at all. I mean, full disclosure, my my starting salary in publishing was $32,000. Mm-hmm. Mine was 27500 Yeah. I mean, in New York, where the average rent, I mean, the rent of my apartment in New York when I was first living there was about 800 to $1,000. Mm-hmm. So if you make 32000 a year, that's like nothing. Um, and especially for a lot of people of color who may have immigrant parents or parents from working class families. And so these people have been unable to help their, their children in that way. You know, a lot of people of color, especially the children of immigrants, I think, um, were off are sometimes the first in their family to go to college. They paid their way themselves through college. They have, you know, maybe financially assist their parents as well. So the entry point into publishing is expensive. It is expensive. And so these are sort of structural factors that keep publishing extremely white, for one. Um, there used to be a joke that all the editorial assistants looked the same because they were all, you know, youngish white women with shoulder-length brown hair and glasses. <laughs> um, so, you know, and for me, I grew up pretty pretty privileged. My dad is white. I went to a prep school and a lot of my environments have been mostly white, you know, growing up. So I'm not uncomfortable being in a predominantly white environment, but it, it, I would notice in certain ways, certain things that did bother me about books that people were trying to acquire. I wasn't comfortable speaking up on, or if I did speak up on, they would write off my criticism as being inexperienced rather than like a legitimate objection to (laughs) problematic content. Um, So it's mostly a lot of microaggressions when you get into that industry. And even then, I mean, this was now, it's been a couple of years, and I wasn't as informed or even conscious of of any of these things until a little bit after I've left, really. Um, So at the time, 
the things that made it difficult for me to work in publishing were not necessarily the fact that I was a person of color. It was just the fact that I was broke constantly, constantly broke, um, racking up a lot of credit card debt and stuff like that. And also it's really hard when you're starting out to acquire books and make a case for the books you want to acquire as an editor. It is doubly hard, I think, as a person of color, especially if you find a book that resonates with you, but it doesn't resonate with anybody else in the editorial room. It's often written off as maybe this book isn't good enough, but maybe when you look at, when I look at it now, I was like, maybe it's because there's just a lot of systemic, you know, privilege that was preventing them from connecting to whatever book I was trying to bring up. So, yeah, it's a little bit swimming upstream, I guess. Um, But again, like I said, at the time, I didn't really notice it in that regard. Um, So that's that's kind of what I can say, really. I mean, as a writer, my books don't feature people of color at the moment. You know, this particular story is set in Germany. (laughs) Um, And that was based purely on, not purely, but a large part on my love of Mozart, who was living in Central Europe in the late 18th centuries. That was really why I picked that time and place. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's, you know, there's a lot of discussions about own voices and things like that. And if you are a person of color trying to break into publishing, either from the publishing, into the publishing side or into the writing side, I think the thing that you have to, the things that are true on both tracks is you have to be persistent. You have to, I mean, you have to be persistent even if you aren't a person of color. Publishing as an industry is extremely hard to break into because there's a lot of people vying for, for not a lot of positions and you just have to be persistent, um, and have a really good sense of who you are. You know, I've never been somebody who's been especially externally validated. I've always had a very good sense of what I liked, what I thought was good, and I no one's opinion really changes that for me. So that works for me because I was able to kind of make my case a lot of times with a lot of the books I wanted to buy. Um, but also, and this is true regard, again, regardless of whether or not you're a person of color, is that a lot of things are beyond your control in this business. Economic factors, market trends, all of this is beyond your control. So as long as you're persistent and have a very clear sense of your own voice, your own taste, and you own those, I think that's the best, the best advice that I can give. So there's that. I hope that wasn't too much of a downer. <laughs> no. We, we, we regularly bring people down on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, it's what we do. <laughs> um, the second part of Nadia's question is, also, JJ, any plans to offer any arcs of Winter Song to podcast listeners? Pretty please. Ooh. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm sorry. I only had a limited number of galleys to give away. Uh, personally, like I only got like three copies of my own galley, um, and I had to use those judiciously and sparingly. Um, but you can always request from NetGalley. I do believe it is available to request if you, you know, want to read an e-galley of it. Physical copies of the galleys though, I don't believe are 
it's you know there's not a ton of them and I think my publisher wants to use them for other promotional purposes um, but I don't know I can ask that's all I can really do I can ask if we want to host a Witcher song giveaway on my podcast if you guys are interested I guess let us know <laughs> you should be interested because I've read it and it's really good <laughs> <laughs> We have another question from Michelle, who says, Hi, I am currently a fashion assistant at an NYC department store and would love to transition into copy editing and publishing for the fashion and design industries. I've been investigating CPC and NYU's pub course, and I think either would be a perfect place for me to get into publishing, since I don't have a background in publishing or any chance at an internship. I'm not a recent grad. I got my BA in 2003 and my MA in architectural preservation in 2013. Question is, are these programs only for recent grads or do they also accommodate career transitioners? Also, what kind of jobs do the graduates go into? Do they do any editorial work or do they work strictly on the business side of publishing? Thanks. Okay, Michelle, there's kind of a couple of things here. Um, the first question, I think, that is easiest to answer is are these programs for recent grads or not? And I think the answer to that is uh, there's no restriction. I think anyone um, can attend these at any time. JJ shaking your head. Are, are you agreeing or disagreeing? Oh, I'm agreeing. I'm agreeing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And no, the same thing with internships is yeah. actually internships are open to anyone, anybody, any age. It does tend to be a lot of recent graduates, um, but not exclusively by any means. Uh, so don't let that stop you. Certainly if you want to apply like any program, you know, there's no age restriction, go whenever, um, in terms of determining whether it's the right fit for the kind of career that you want to have and the types of jobs that graduates can go into, um, that kind of depends on a number of things. These publishing programs, from the way that I understand them, um, my husband went to the publishing program at Pace University, and he did not complete it. He ended up getting a job in publishing um, when he was only halfway through and just stopped going to school and went right into the workforce. So I've never attended a publishing program like this, but my husband did. Um, when I met him, he was enrolled in the publishing program at Pace University in New York, and he didn't complete it. He ended up getting a full-time job in publishing before he was completed with the program, so he just left school and started working. Um, but from him and from some other people I know that have taken that course and others in New York, it is um, kind of a general overview of publishing, you kind of focus a little bit on lots of different areas, marketing and publicity, editorial, sales, you know, you get a little bit of a taste of the overall industry. And you might have special projects that you work on, you know, in each unit um, that get you a little bit more involved in things. I do think a lot of them do tend to be really marketing and publicity heavy. Um, so I think that that is a really big focus. Um, for copy editing, I don't know that I would necessarily re recommend, if, if copy editing strictly is what you want to do, I don't know that I would necessarily recommend an entire publishing program, although maybe I would. Um, 
you know, I think we talked on here before about ways to get into copy editing. Um, there's lots of different industries. Obviously, the fashion industry will have copy editing. Take a copy editing class for sure. Maybe even just start there no matter what. Just take a regular copy editing class off Media Bistro or um, they have plenty of online classes depending on where you're located. You're in, you're in New York, so I'm sure there's some local classes um, that you could attend. I would start there. And then consider whether or not you want to go into a publishing program. Um, in terms of what kind of jobs graduates get, it, again, all depends on what's available, what your experience is, um, what your applicable skills are. The publishing industry is built on... Um, almost apprenticeships, I want to say. It's very mm -hmm. difficult to come in with no experience and get an editing job without going up the rungs, you know, of first being an assistant and then, you know, an associate and then, you know, working your way up that ladder. Um, and this... The only way you can make that lateral transition is if you have equivalent experience somehow. So right. if you an agent, sometimes you can make that ship that shift over, or if you've been, you know, some sort of executive, perhaps in either TV or film, sometimes you can make right. that transition, but like, so equivalent experience with narrative is something where you can kind of move over. But if you're kind of coming from other fields that it's, it's harder to get yeah. a job as so an editor. I would, I would expect to start in entry level positions, um, you know, as assistants in various departments. Also, even for assistants and entry level jobs, um, editorial are the most competitive, um, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, then probably marketing and publicity next. Um, but there's assistants at every, every department in publishing will have, you know, there's contracts assistants and there's sales assistants and general publishing assistants who just kind of do a little bit of everything. You know, there's always, um, admin support work to be done. So, you know, the publishing, um, editorial assistants will be the most competitive, will have the most people applying for them. Um, you know, if you want to stay within the fashion industry and just move into a section of the fashion industry that is more about, um, you know, copy editing, you might look into magazines, um, you know, finding fashion magazines and, you know, either interning there or seeing if you could get, you know, an assistant position there somehow, because um, at least that will give you some publishing experience and you'll, your fashion skills will be applicable in that environment, um, and seen as an asset. So that might be something that you want to do. I think the, the main thing is to figure out, you know, what your end goals are. And when I say end goals, I'm talking, you know, like a five to 10 year plan. <laughs> um, Cause you, you know, again, you're, you're going to have to work your way into the position that you want. And then once you figure out where you want to end up, kind of trace back and see what choices could help get you closer to that end goal. If you want to stay in fashion and work in 
old-fashioned publishing somehow, if you want to be a copywriter, we'll say, for catalogs or something like that, that's actually something you can find through Media Bistro. Most of the copywriting, not necessarily copy editing, also copy editing, to be honest, um, yeah. is freelance. Nearly every single copy-type job is going to be freelance. I mean, publishing houses, major publishing houses, do have in-house copy editors, but they also contract out to freelancers. And, you know, they contract out to proofreaders and stuff like that. Um, if you want to stay in the fashion industry and be a copywriter, you know, I'm sure, like, magazines hire just people who write mm-hmm. copy for the web, you know, to write copy for descriptions of their products. You know, all of these sorts of things you can actually find by going directly to the websites themselves. Like, you know, I'm sure whichever department store that you work for as a fashion consultant, you know, you can see that there's an actual portion of that that is dedicated to writing part. Um, If you want to write sort of fashion articles, again, that's a freelance thing. You would pitch various fashion magazines with your idea. And it's hard to kind of immediately break into that without a resume. So if you want to be a freelance writer of any kind and you just start pitching ideas to different outlets, to different lifestyle magazines, to, you know, Vogue, Teen Vogue, Cosmo, all these places you can pitch ideas to and you can pitch articles to. A lot of the people who write for these lifestyle lifestyle and fashion magazines are freelance. They are not in staff writers hired by the magazine. The people who work on the magazine who are in staff are the editors, the ones who, you know, edit the pitches, collect the, you know, solicit pit people to write for them, you know, all, and then the production aspect of it, all that sort of stuff. Um, so if you want to get into the writing side of it, you just build up your portfolio. And again, you can find a lot of these opportunities on places like Media Bistro, or if you just go directly to the websites themselves of these fashion magazines i'm sure there's i'm sure there's a section that says something like submissions and you can pitch pitch there you know with a sample of your writing so it's not impossible to transition from what you're doing now into something related to fashion that is also related to publishing but it's not quite the same as book publishing magazine publishing and book publishing are in fact very very different i would say that magazine publishing almost bridges sort of like straight up news Mm. journalism and book publishing book publishing is you know and i'm specifically thinking about fiction fiction is very fiction publishing is just different from you know news journalism from you know writing for lifestyle magazines from being a columnist at a website all sorts of different things like that but you can absolutely Build up your portfolio as a writer. You know, a lot of online blogs and stuff do pay. You know, RIP the toast, but they used to pay for submissions too. You know, for if you wanted to pitch them any, any sort of idea, then you could do that. But, you know, there are plenty of venues where you can get your name out there and start building up a resume and then applying to different magazines. So I hope that answered yeah. your question. Okay, this review is from Vanny Lee titled Simply I Love This Podcast. I could babble all over this blank space about how much I love it, but I'll simplify. JJ and Kelly are great and relatable hosts with so much handy info to share. If you're an aspiring writer who doesn't know as much as you'd like to about publishing and writing craft, this is a must-listen. 
It has a comfortable vibe that makes you almost too cozy and delusional in thinking that you're all besties getting writer girl wasted. Love it. (laughs) You need it in your life. Side note. Uh, reposting this because gasp, I noticed a grammatical error and have clumsy phone fingers. I do too. Fanny Lee. I also have clumsy phone ringers, ringers, phone fingers (laughs) and a clumsy phone mouth. Apparently, um, when we got this particular review, I remember JJ and I texted back and forth because writer girl wasted is like, if we could have a slogan for the podcast, that's what we would want it to be. Yes, Absolutely. Oh, so that was wonderful. Thank you so much. That warms the cockles of my ice cold heart. Mm-hmm. So, thank you very much. I mean, we're we're glad that you guys like listening on our random conversations. <laughs> <laughs> we try not to go off on too many tangents, but you know, yeah, this is just literally the way we talk, and we're we're happy that you guys you know aren't necessarily turned off by that. <laughs> That is all for this week. Next week, we're going to be resurrecting our writing mechanics series, and we're going to be talking about pacing. So if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice. Also, if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance as it helps other listeners find the podcast. If you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at pubcrawlblog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at publishingcrawl. And also, if you have any questions to ask us on Twitter, you can tag it with the hashtag askpubcrawl, and mm-hmm. that's, that's how we'll look for new questions to answer if you have any. Yeah. You can follow me, Kelly, at Bookish Chick on Twitter or Instagram or my website, penandparsley.com. And you can follow me, JJ, at SJ Jones. That's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S on Twitter or my website, sjjones.com. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, author of Vengeance Road, available now wherever books are sold. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com or send us an ask through Tumblr. Thank you guys so much for listening. Bye. Bye. (laughs) Welcome to episode 50. What episode are we on? Uh, nope. And also you can follow me, Kelly. (laughs) You can follow me, Kelly, at Bookish Chick on Twitter or Instagram or my website, penandparsley.com. I didn't, I didn't give my name, did I? What am I doing? (laughs) We have lots of bloopers this week. Oh boy. All right, here I go. Here I go. I can do this. I can do this. God. Oh, I have forgotten the English language.